He's going to come and he's going to read our text of scripture here, which is Jude, the whole letter of Jude. And um, we will jump right into this together. So Jude. Jude. <clears throat> Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Oh, let's let's stand. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own chain, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show others to, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, and now and forever. Amen. Lord, would you help us now as we continue on, Lord, in this incredible little book, Lord, that you have given us. Would you allow us to be humble, to be teachable? Would you allow, Lord, your messenger to simply reflect your truth? Would you allow us to be bold, that, Lord, as well as um, to be willing to be convicted, Lord, by your Holy Spirit through your word? Lord, I ask that, that, that the tone of what is said today would reflect, Lord, the tone of this letter. A tone of warning, yet a tone of compassion and love for those who are part of God's family. And uh, Lord, would you be glorified, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now Jude describes the, the false teaching that had invaded the church early um, on. And in verse 4, he, he, he's quickly written this letter, and this is what he says, for certain people, and they're called these people throughout this little letter, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago designated were designated for this condemnation ungodly people and this is what they're doing they were perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ so this this false or counterfeit gospel had two components to it one a perverted grace that leads to and welcomes sensual behavior and secondly a rebellious attitude toward the authority and the lordship of Christ so again a perverted grace that leads to and welcomes sensual behavior in other words you can have Jesus and your sensuality you can have the form of godliness as well as the freedom to live sensually right and secondly a rebellious attitude to the authority and lordship of Christ. Okay, we, we recognize Christ, we respect Christ, but you don't actually have to listen to Christ. So it was already permeating the early church, drawing people away from the truth. And the truth that the gospel of God's grace moves the believer from a place of death, unholiness, and bondage to life, holiness that is found in Christ, and freedom to live our lives in holiness for the glory of God. The truth that it is about Jesus Christ who is our Lord and Master to whom we must bow the knee and humbly follow by faith and in obedience to the glory of God. So there's this, there's this challenge going on in the context of the church. There is the truth of the Gospels. There's the truth of the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And there is false teaching. There's counterfeit Gospel that is being presented to these churches. There's a man by the name of Trevin Wax who has written a book called Counterfeit Gospels. And I'm going to take some time to walk through um, these counterfeit gospels that he's identified. At the end of our, our time here today, I have a, a handout that will kind of walk you through all this. So you don't have to get it all down. Okay? But I, I want us to, to think through some of the contemporary counterfeit gospels. Gospels that aren't really go the gospel at all. Okay? Here's the first one. The therapeutic gospel, where sin robs us of our sense of fullness. Christ's death 
proves our worth as humans and gives us power to reach our potential. And the role of the church is to help us find happiness in this world. Then there's the the formalist gospel, where, where sin is failing to keep church rules and regulations. A lot of people outside the context of church, they think of church in these terms, right? You just follow a bunch of rules, follow a bunch of regulations, and some people actually do. That Christ's death gives us an agenda so we can begin to follow the pre-described forms of Christianity. Then there's the, the moralist gospel. Our big problem, Trevin would say here is sins, plural, not sin, nature. The purpose for Christ's death is to give us a second chance and make us better people. Everyone deserves a second chance. right? And redemption comes through the exercise of willpower with God's help. You, you can do it. You can, you can press on. You can, you can read that Bible in here. You can, you can stop doing that sin. It's, it's all moralism when it comes down to it. There's the, the judgmental judgmentless gospel. God's forgiveness does not need to come through the sacrifice of his son. Judgment is more about God's goodness, not the need for human rebellion to be punished. Evangelism is not urgent. Remember, God loves everyone, does he not? Why would a loving God fill in the blank? It all comes from me. The social club gospel Salvation is all about finding fellowship and friendship at church. No, I'm all for that, right? The gospel is reduced to Christian relationships that help us enjoy life. So there are elements here that are good, but it's missing the whole point of what the gospel is and what the ultimate role and function of the church is. And there's the activist gospel. We've seen this one blow in in the, you know, in the... 2000s. It says this, the kingdom is advancing through our efforts to build a just society. The gospel's power is demonstrated through cultural transformation and the church is united around political causes and social projects. When people ask, what are you doing for local ministry? This is usually what they're talking about. What are you doing in your community to help the the suffering and the hurting and the... Okay. And there's an attitude that we need to have a, a social agenda. And it's an activist gospel. Number seven, the churchless gospel. The focus of salvation is primarily on the individual in a way that makes the community of faith peripheral to God's purposes. Now, you can go to church. I'll just stay home and I'll watch someone on TV. Or, uh, you know, I, I do church on my own. Right? The church is viewed as an option to personally personal spirituality or even an obstacle to Christ-likeness. Interesting. If I go to church, I'm going to be like all those other hypocrites. I'm going to, I'm going to do this the right way. <laughs> the mystic gospel. Salvation comes through an emotional experience with God. The church is there to help me feel close to God by helping me along in my pursuit of my mystical union. And in fact, this person will go from church to church to church to church to find that mystical experience. So you have a lot of people moving around. Then there's the quietest gospel. Um, There you go. Quietest gospel. Salvation is about spiritual things, not 
secular matters. Christianity is only about individual life change and is not concerned with society and politics. It's, it's like this is it's my, my relationship with God and it doesn't interfere with anything else. It's just a spiritual endeavor and it's kind of isolated to me. Now friends, these are, this is one list and there are others out there that describe distortions of gospel emphasis. Where, where in a variety of ways the gospel is changed to fit a particular agenda. Now friends, this is the context in which we live. The context of false teaching with this false counterfeit gospels is the world in which we live and minister as the church. Now this was true in the Old Testament. That's why Jude reaches back and counsels the churches from examples from the Old Testament, right? From Israel in the wilderness, from the fallen angels, from Sodom and Gomorrah, from Cain and Balaam and Korah. But this was also true then in the New Testament church, and it's still true today in 2014. The bottom line in the counterfeit Gospels is, number one, we want to live in the flesh and feel good about it. We want to do what we want to do. Secondly, we want to decide for ourselves and not to be told what to do. And that is a cry of culture. But people aren't necessarily standing out there with placards saying that, but when you, when you push them, they, they want the freedom to decide what they're going to do. They don't want anyone else telling them what to do. And they want the freedom to exercise their flesh and feel good about it. And still, if they're Christian, if they're religious, they still want to do it and think that it honors God. So Jude's tender but urgent cry is that we, God's church, contend for the faith. And so, having given these six powerful examples of God's judgment on ungodliness, Jude transitions to application. And so, in verses 17 through 23, we have this this practical application laid out for us. How to contend for the faith in the context of ungodliness. And we spent time already seeking to answer that question. And that question is answered in Jude's little letter in three ways. He calls us, first of all, to remember, and in particular, to remember what the apostles said, that these kind of times would come. In other words, you can translate that into this. Remember that God is sovereign and that you are called to live and to minister in a context that is going to be ungodly. So don't try and run away from it. Now a lot of people leaving California hear about it on the radio. They're fed up. How many new taxes did we get this week? I mean people just, they're leaving. They go other places. Now we must be careful that we're not kind of getting on the bandwagon of that and realizing that, listen, wherever we go, God is calling us to live in the context of ungodliness. Now, the the light of ungodliness, or might want to say the darkness of ungodliness, how does darkness shine? Well, the darkness here is is gloomy, and the shadow of darkness is, is heavier here in the Bay Area. A lot of people around this country recognize that. But this is where God has called us to minister to. So we must remember... God's sovereignty. And that's verses 17 through 19. And then we're to remember, or we're called to remain. 
And this is the, the focus now. In remembering God's sovereignty, we are now to pursue our own sanctification. We're called to be responsible to pursue growth in Christ as a priority by building, by praying, by waiting. And it's an interesting paradigm, isn't it? That, that remember, God is sovereign. I've called you to this. Now the first thing I'm calling you to is to work on your own growth in Christ. Work on your own relationship with me. And then, the third thing is what we're going to look at today, this whole idea of rescue. He's calling us to rescue others' um, salvation, we could talk about here. right? This is rescuing other people from the peril that they're in. And that's verse 22 and 23. And on, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so... Jude now draws attention to these three groups to whom we're called upon to show mercy. So as you see, I'm, I'm kind of working our way down through this text to these two verses of Scripture to say this is what Jude has for us today. He's showing us these three groups that we are called to have a rescuing ministry toward. These three groups to whom we're called upon to show mercy. And if you could summarize what this, these two verses are about. They're about showing mercy to others. Now these three groups are, are people who are struggling with or in the fog of or entrenched in this counterfeit gospel that was experienced there in, in the churches when Jude is writing. And these three groups are the doubters, the deceived, and the defiled, and we'll walk through them in that order. And to all of them, God has called us to exercise mercy. Now friends, hear this. This is true mercy ministry. I'm not saying that other stuff that is called mercy ministry, that, you know, helping those who are poor, going to a soup kitchen or a rescue mission, or, or someone who, who, you know, is down and out, needs some help, that is certainly an act of mercy to other people. But this is what God is calling us to. This is what Jude is saying we should do. This is, the, this is the action part of Jude's letter. You can summarize what Jude ultimately is saying to the people in the church by these two verses. Show mercy. This is mercy in the trenches. This is a call to reclamation evangelism. A call to Reclaim those who have wandered from the faith. Anyone here know someone who used to be a part of church, who's no longer a part of church, who's walked away from church, maybe because they got entangled in sin, maybe because they got disillusioned with something that happened in church. There's all sorts of different reasons, but people leave. People get swallowed up by different ideologies, and there's a need for us who are in the church, who know the truth, who have embraced the truth, who are living in that truth, to take on not just a, an evangelistic mindset to those who are outside the church, but also to take on a reclamation evangelism mindset. To go in love to those who have believed the lies of false teachers and to call them back, ultimately, to orthodoxy. So, there's a tone of gentleness, there's a tone of love that Jude gives in this letter, as well as a tone of warning, bold warning, but speaking to those who are believers, he calls them beloved. And he now tells them to exercise mercy. The first group are the doubters. The doubters. It says in verse 22, And have mercy on those 
who doubt. Now, who are the doubters? They are the people who are confused and don't know what is right in God's eyes. The word doubt, the idea of doubting, is to vacillate from one idea to another. To wobble between what God says and the counterfeit gospel and what it says. In Jude's day, they are the ones who are struggling with a gospel that says, you're free in God to enjoy the pleasures of your flesh with a clear conscience. You're not bound by what Christ says. False teachers, listen to this, false teachers prey on those who are not grounded in the truth. They prey on those who are not building on a solid foundation, which we read about in verses 20 and 21. They prey on those who who don't understand praying in the Spirit. They prey on those who don't understand the certain hope of the Lord's return that's driving them to live godly lives now. They don't know what 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 is true and what is false. They can't distinguish between the two. They don't have that foundation. Specifically now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 6 and 7 tells us that these are weak people. Verse 6 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and, and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive uh, at the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that interesting? Always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now friends, we one of, the, one of the, the passions of our church is that we know, that we know, that we apply, and that we proclaim the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important that we have a knowledge and an application of God's truth. It is possible to spend you know, years sitting under preaching and teaching, but never actually arrive. And the r- result here is these in particular, there's women here, but they're weak women, burdened with sin and led astray. In James, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, they're described as the double-minded. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the doubters, they're confused. They're, they're not sure what is true and what is false. And they don't have the grounding. They don't have the, the solid footing that they've been building upon to say, aha, I know what truth is. And so they're, they're swayed back and forth. And they're swayed back and forth by people that they think and that are claiming to know the truth and teach the truth. And so they're confused and they're wobbling and they're vacillating. So, so what is it that Jude is calling us to? How are we to respond to those who waver in their understanding of what is good and what is right. And that's the question for us now. And the answer is this. Jude says that those who are strong must show mercy. And we must be careful to fight away the feelings of the flesh that so easily come upon us. When someone is doubting, when someone is not embracing the truth, when someone is bouncing back and forth, there can be a tendency for us to get angry. You know, Pastor Rod was talking about that just a month ago. How come you didn't get it? Or it could be pride. 
to say, well, you know, you know, I've known this for a long time, you know, you must not have the capacity or something like that. To, to condemn. To, to show frustration. To be impatient. Those are, those are sinful tendencies that we may have with someone who's doubting. Can't you just get with the program, right? Instead, we're called to come to those who are doubting, wobbling, and vacillating with a mercy that stabilizes them in the truth. So it's a mercy that stabilizes them. It's a mercy that grounds them. It's a mercy that is willing with humility, with patience, with joy, draws them to the place where truth is understood and truth is received. And they're no longer doubting. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Turn there if you would please. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. A passage that speaks about some of this activity. And I think there's some truths that are helpful here. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression. And literally, it's, that word caught is the same word that is used to describe the, the Good Samaritan. Remember the, 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 the not the Good Samaritan, but the, the one that was walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he was overtaken by thieves. It's that same word, of overtaken. So this is a person who has been overtaken by a transgression, by a sin. It says, you who are spiritual. And that's not talking about the elders of the church. That's talking about those who are God's children. Those who have new life in Christ. Okay, Should restore him in the spirit of what? Gentleness, it says here. Meekness. This is a merciful attitude toward those who are struggling. So those who doubt, those who need, are those who need our compassion and our clarity in the gospel. So we must ask ourselves the question, how would I like to be treated if I were confused about what was true? How would I like to be treated if I were struggling to understand what God was saying? How would I like to be treated if all my friends were embracing a teaching that was popular but a perversion of the gospel? Now the issue isn't so much how would, how would I like to be treated, but what would God desire that we do in treating that person? Well, obviously you want to be treated with mercy, with gentleness. So the answer would be something like this. I would ask that you treat me with an attitude of love and compassion and then show me the clarity of the teaching that is found in God's Word. And that is the spirit of Galatians 6.1. Restore that person in the spirit of gentleness. And by the way, that passage is talking about a long relationship. It goes all the way to verse 5. Where this person has, needs someone else to carry a burden together. And verse 5 tells us ultimately they're able to carry their own burden by themselves. And what's happening during that time, there's a lot of teaching, there's a lot of instruction, there's a lot of counsel comes from the Word of God. So the, the, the idea is this, that we, we mercy people to the place of certainty in God's truth. <laughs> we mercy people. Now that requires that we change our views according or regarding ministry in the church. We must be patient as people struggle with God's Word. We must be humble to remember that we were once struggling with what was in God's word and understanding what it means and what it says. We must be encouraging so that those who doubt don't simply throw in the towel 
believing that it is just too hard. And we must be biblical and learn to be skillful in showing the clarity of God's word against the perversions that they are considering. And hear this. We who are the recipients of God's mercy must also be the agents of God's mercy to those who are wobbling with the faith. We are the recipients of God's mercy. But now Jude is calling us to be agents of God's mercy to those who doubt. So those are the doubters who are vacillating and we are called to a mercy that stabilizes them in the faith. Secondly, there are the deceived who are embracing. There are some who are no longer doubting, but they've taken the next step. They are embracing the false teaching and are walking perilously close to the fire. To them, Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So who are these deceived? They are the ones who have allowed themselves to get to the place that they are so close to the fires that they need to be rescued. In the fight of contending for the faith, Jude now calls us to a ministry of rescue. A ministry of snatching them out of the fire. James identifies this as the ministry of bringing back. James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. This is what it says. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. There's a ministry we need to be known for. A bring back ministry. A desire and a love to go after those who are on the brink of the fires of judgment. This is exactly what God did with his people during the ministry of Amos in the Old Testament. Amos chapter 4, verse 11. And you could even write down Zechariah chapter 3. Jude is leaning on the imagery from those two passages for what he is saying here. Here's what Amos 4.11 says. I overthrow some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as brand a brand plucked out of the burning. So he's reaching in, and there's, there, there they are, and he grabs them out of the flames into the place of safety. And that's a picture of what we are called to do. The fire here is the fire of judgment. And those who are deceived are standing, as it were, on the very edges of hell, being singed by its fire. This is, this is powerful language. So how are we to respond to these people who are so deceived. Well, we're called to a mercy. And we're called to a mercy um, that rescues people from the fire. So that's clearly there in the text, okay? But this rescuing ministry comes to us in two parts. We're to save them. That is the rescuing part. But we need to, we need to minimize our role in that activity. Although Jude is saying this is what you need to do, in the big picture of things, we are not the ones that do any of the saving at all, right? It is God that does the saving. We are simply the agents, the secondary means that he uses to reach those sinners. 
So we are to place ourselves in the process of what God is doing with the idea of pulling them out of the fire, but recognizing that it is God that is working through us to pull them out of the fire of judgment. Secondly, uh, would be we are to snatch them out of that fire. All right? And the idea of this word snatch is telling us how we are to do it. How are we to save them? And the word here, translated snatch, is a strong word that means something like this, to take something forcefully, to capture something more. It's that thief who's running through the market and snatches that person, runs away. You're taking it by force. I'm going to get it. I'm going to have it. It's going to be mine. The same idea is there, is there is this aggressive pursuit and reclaiming of that person. And it implies action. It is not saying just stand on the sidelines and look. It implies action. For years, a number of years, I served as a lifeguard. I used to teach um, life-saving and advanced life-saving. And one of the things that you were taught to look for was a particular behavior that took place in the water that demonstrated that someone was drowning. And, you know, people can be out there playing in the water and there's all kind of splashing going on, but there's a certain kind of splashing activity that is a panic splashing. And it's basically arms that are flapping like this. So as a lifeguard, you're kind of looking out, you're watching over the water, and you're looking for that. And as soon as you see it, you know trouble is, the, is going on. And so all the other lifeguards are trained to see that also. Now imagine I saw someone splashing away in panic because they were, they were close to drowning. Now I certainly could pray for them. I'm the lifeguard, I'm the head lifeguard. I could pray for them in that moment of time and say, Lord, there's a person over there splashing away. It looks like they're drowning. Lord, I'm going to get on my knees because I really care about them. And I'm going to pray. In fact, I'm going to lay flat on the ground and pour my heart out to you because they are over there drowning. I could call some of my fellow lifeguards to come over and observe what a panic splashing looks like. And talk about, hey, this is what panic splashing is. Have you ever seen it before? Pretty ugly, isn't it? Now, maybe together we should all pray, get on our knees, and see what we can do. Or maybe I could, I could observe them from a distance, occasionally sending messages to help them as they are drowning, hoping that maybe someone around them will come and be able to give them some help. Or I could do what I am trained to do or called to do, what I've been taught to do, what I know is necessary. I can do what I can to rescue them out of the water. You get, you get the point that I'm driving at here. Now, not all the people who are drowning, or in the case of Jude, being singed by the fire, want to be rescued. And I'll tell you, I've been there. I've seen someone splashing. I've quickly swum out with that lifeguard swim. You've ever seen it before. It's like a dog in water. Your head's kind of stiff in the water and you, you're swimming away and your head's just focused on where you need to go and you get there and this person is flapping away but they don't want to be rescued oh they do but they don't and if you get too close here's what's going to happen they're going to do everything they can to grab you to hold you to push you down because they're gasping for breath they're wanting to get to safety 
They don't care that you're there to save them. They care that you're there to so that they can get on top of you. In other words, they're more willing to push you down, to climb all over you so that they can get one more breath of air. And so a good lifeguard will have learned to assess the situation and be ready to do something drastic. Slap! Sometimes dunking the person underwater. Sometimes grabbing them by their arms in such a way that they don't have control so that you can establish who is actually in control here and can get them to safety. Now see, there's a motive going on in that lifeguard that's saying, I want to save this person. That person, all they can care about is, I'm going down. And you're just another object to step on so I can get another breath. Now, as we snatch people from the fire, I'm not advocating that we slap them, that we punch them, that we submerge them in water or physically grab them. What I am suggesting, or what I'm saying flushes out of this passage, is that the danger of the situation calls for drastic action. And friends, I fear that this may be one of the areas where good churches fail the most. And I know that's an area that I constantly struggle in. Wondering if I'm doing enough. Wishing that I had been more lovingly aggressive. Suffering from the what will people think lie that is so easily stifling my love for that person who is being singed by the fire. We have become so reluctant to challenge the individualism of our day that we could easily be found guilty of allowing those who are deceived to jump into the fire because we're not willing to help and because we're, we're not convinced in ourselves that it's our place to even give them that. We're actually more afraid, I think, of what they will think of us than the peril that they're in. Now, it may also be due to the fact the sinfulness of our ungodly culture has had such an effect on us that we just don't see the smoke from the singeing fire anymore. What is dangerous in God's eyes is no longer dangerous. Now, now friends, this is, this is hard stuff. And I say it's hard stuff because there are faces that are popping in my head that I just like, maybe if I did this, and maybe if I had done that. And I'm sure all of you are thinking the same thing. This all comes back to the gospel. Man's sinful actions can be traced to his rejection of the good news that God's grace not only declares you holy, but also enables you to live holy lives before God. It goes back to a gospel where man's sinful actions can be traced to his rejection of Jesus Christ as his Lord. He's serving a different master, and today that master is self. But we are called to a ministry of mercy that rescues people from the fire. Then we have the third group the defiled. The defiled. And the defiled who are entrenched. 
So there are those who doubt, confused at the teaching of false teachers. They need a stabilizing mercy. There are those who are deceived and embrace teaching of the false teachers. They are, or they need a rescuing mercy. Finally, there are those who are defiled, who are entrenched in the teaching of the false teachers. They are now party-line followers of the false teachers and may also include the false teachers themselves. How does Jude want us to respond to them? Now notice, Jude doesn't isolate any particular people in the church. He's speaking to the church at large. To others, he says, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is where the counsel of verses 17 through 21 is essential. We are to remember that God is sovereign. He's called us to this ungodly context. We're to remind ourselves that we are to be remaining by building one another up in the most holy faith. In other words, having a divine perspective and solid understanding of the faith will help us to reach out to those who doubt, those who are deceived, and those who are defiled. Notice Jude does not say, hey, these are heretics who have abandoned God and deserve your judgment. No, he reminds us that it is God who judges. He is calling us to have an attitude of mercy that is marked by two words. The first mercy is a mercy that fears. A mercy that fears. To others, show mercy with fear. And when seeking to rescue the defiled and the entrenched rejecter of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is calling us to proceed with caution and with a clear-headed attitude. The fear that is talked about here is not the fear of God or the fear of man. It's the fear of something else. Although both of those fears are absolutely necessary to make sure that we have a, a proper mindset, this is a fear of personal temptation. It's a fear of personally getting so close that you might be singed by the fire yourself. It's a fear that you might drop your spiritual guard and fall prey to the very thing that you're trying to rescue these people from. So you're showing mercy, but you're doing it with fear. You're entering in to out and out and out entrenched ungodliness people who perverted the gospel who are standing firm in their perversion of the gospel and standing firm in their rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ as God. Now let's go back to Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It continues on. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There's that warning. Same idea. We are called to seek out the brother or sister who has wandered, even to the extent here in Jude that they are entrenched in the false teaching. And not to go and call them heretics, although I think in the, in the um, pastoral epistles there's some pastoral instruction to be clear about what people are doing and what they're call it for what it is. But we are called here to exercise mercy and a mercy that is fearful, fearful that we are not going to allow ourselves 
to be entangled in the very sin that we're trying to pull people out of. And Paul understands this danger. Jude is fully aware of the power of sin and temptation, even among the strongest of us. So we proceed cautiously and prayerfully so that we are not drawn in by the very people we're seeking to rescue. Now again, I go back to my lifeguarding scenario. Here's this person, they're flapping around in the water. And one of the things you learn in lifeguarding is that one of the, one of the more critical things you've got to be careful of is what's called a double drowning. It's a person that's out there and they're flailing in the water and a person goes out there to help. Oftentimes it's a person who's not trained in lifeguarding and they go out there with the desire to help and they end up being underneath the person that is panicking like I told you because that person's only looking to find that gasp of air to, to stay alive and not drown and so they push that person down and they both fight against each other and they end up drowning together. And friends, there's a sense in which that could be true if we are pursuing those who are defiled and entrenched in false teaching which fleshes out into false behavior, that we could somehow in our desire to reach them get around what's going on there and our fleshly senses are alerted to some of the freedoms that they're presenting. It's like, wow, there's a whole community of people that believe this and embrace this and are okay with this. And I can actually satisfy some simple desire that I've been struggling with in my heart. And here it's okay. If I go back here, it's not. It's considered ungodly. But over here... I have freedom to, to, to exercise it and, and to think in my mind that God is pleased with it. And all of a sudden, a double drowning is taking place. So the good intentions of a would-be rescuer turn into a tragedy. So Jude here is saying, show mercy to those who are defiled and entrenched in their false gospel, but let a healthy caution and fear accompany your mercy. Now that might look like this. You're not attempting to rescue alone. Secondly, you're not attempting to rescue without prayer. Thirdly, you're not attempting to rescue in your own strength. Fourth thing, maybe you're not attempting to rescue without guidance or counsel for what needs to be done. Now friends, there's a reason why we are a church. I've had conversations with you say, you know, I have, a, I have a family member, I have a friend who is caught up in X, Y, and Z, and I want to go talk to them. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to talk to them. What do you think? And they're talking not just to me, but to other people they respect within the church, and they get counsel, and the counsel comes to them and says, hey, you know what? Go talk to them, but here's how you go do it. And so the caution here is you don't just go marching off and say, oh, I've got Christ. You know, there's wisdom here. It's a, it's a, it's a merciful fear that is the means by which we reach them. That's the first mercy that Jude is talking about. The second mercy is a little further on here. It says to show others, or to, sh- to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stick by flesh. And so the, the next word is this, a mercy that hates. What is not immediately apparent as we read this passage is that Jude is using extremely graphic, you might even say vulgar language to make this point. The garment stained by the flesh is known as the chiton, which would be the equivalent of our underwear. The stain is that which comes out of the flesh and leaves its mark on the underwear. 
need I say more. The false teaching is the stain that Jude is talking about. So, so Jude is basically saying this, just like no one wants to handle anyone else's stained underwear, we are to avoid it by hating it. Because we realize how contaminating it is. We realize the pollution and the corruptedness that it brings. So as I mentioned before, Jude and his language is not his own. He is bringing stuff from the Old Testament into his little letter. And I want to encourage you to, to turn with me to Zechariah toward the end of the Old Testament. And I just want you to see some of the development in Zechariah's little book. In chapter 1, 16, I want you to see the connection to what Jude has already said in his letter. Zechariah 1 and verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. I have returned to Jerusalem, how? With mercy. A Jerusalem that has rejected him. A Jerusalem that has been ungodly. I return to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. This is mercy and building. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Chapter 2, and we'll read verses, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughters of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So he comes with mercy and he comes to dwell and he's calling on the people to rejoice and to sing. Now chapter 3. We'd say verses 1 through 10, but we're going we're gonna to move beyond that. Verse 2, notice there it talks about snatching them out of the fire. How he would cleanse them from their sin. Now notice verse 3 and following. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Garments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And we could summarize Zechariah's message so far in his book in the following way. God, in his mercy, builds his people by plucking them out of the fire and replacing their filthy garments with pure, clean garments. Does that remind you of anything else in Scripture? Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, the putting off, the putting on. And here in Jude, we find this garment that is stained. And then I want to draw your attention also to Revelation 3. And just listen. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who is the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have, uh, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis 
people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. It's this whole theme of soiled garments. And Jude is drawing our attention to the fact that we must exercise mercy, but it's a mercy that fears, but it's also a mercy that hates. He's calling us to merciful hatred, if there's such a way to, to say it. What is it that we're to hate? We're to hate false teaching. And when you hear false teaching, how do you respond? There's a part of you that says, what are you doing? You're perverting the gospel. We're to hate the defilement that comes as a result of false teaching. We're to hate it. We are called to show mercy, but we're also called to be a people who hate. But hate the things that God. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, is often criticized as being a preacher who preached hate. And I've been reading a short biography of of John Knox, and it wasn't always easy for him. Fled the country a number of times. One of the times he was captured and made a, a galley slave in 18 months. But he returned with, with passion to Scotland to preach the gospel. Because in the context of Scotland at that point in time, the, dis, the, the perversions of Catholicism were all over the place. And he would come and he would preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is there in the scriptures. And people would hate what he's saying. In one of her sermons before Mary, Queen of Scots, she was the regent of Scotland, not to be confused with Bloody Mary, who was uh, the, the queen in England. He defended his idea that his preaching was against his enemies rather than as a zeal for the gospel. Here's what he said. Without the, without the preaching place, I think few would have occasion to be offended at. In other words, if it were not for my preaching, few people would be offended at me. And there I am not master of myself, but must obey him who commands me to speak plain and to flatter no flesh in the face of the earth. He's saying, listen, you are offended at me because of what I preach. But listen, what I preach is not my own. I only declare to you what the God of the universe has revealed to man. His biographer would be quick to say that Knox's preaching, however motivated by hate, wasn't motivated by hatred, but he would say this, he passionately hated that which destroys souls. He hated the system that blinded people to the necessity of faith and salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ. And friends, it shouldn't be with any surprise, but it's sad that it will be the world that is telling us that we have trouble with hate speech. We actually should be the ones that say, you know what? We do hate something. Because Scripture calls us to hate things. We hate it when the gospel is turned on its head to be something that it's not because the implications of that are disastrous. And we hate it 
when people are drawn away to live lives in such a way that they are experiencing the, the, the suffering that comes from denying that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master. Our hatred must not, however, be sinful, but clothed with mercy. It's a mercy that we request from verse 1. It's a mercy that we long for, verse 21. And it's a mercy that we're commanded to share, verse 22 and 23. And as the Christian cliche says, we are to hate the sin, not the sin. We've got to be careful with that. But he's talking here about the sin. He's talking about the stain. And he's saying, but be merciful to the person. Even the false teacher. Now, I want to draw it to a close quickly here. Just summarizing some of the things that we've talked about, I think that they're neat, we need to drive them home. There are three themes that scream at us in this text that should mark us as we seek to contend for the faith in the context of ungodliness. Number one, we are to be marked by mercy. It's obvious, it's clear. This is what's flowing out of this text. Mercy that stabilizes, that rescues, that fears, that hates. We're to be marked by, secondly, energy. We're to be doing something. We're called to restorative evangelism and calling those back to faith who have gone astray. That takes energy on our part, not just sitting back, but to pursue, to see the fire, to see the, the singed flesh caused by the fire and to, to chase them down and to rescue them. And the third thing is we're called to be marked by sobriety. We need to be able to think clearly. This is hard and dangerous work. This requires that we are a people committed to building ourselves up, to praying, to hoping in God's promises. Friends, it's a call to be a church that is committed to knowing, to applying, and to proclaiming the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to ourselves and not just to the uh, unbelievers out there, but also to those who have been a part of the church and who have wandered away. Friends, this is a hard responsibility. But we can do it by seeking to be people who are merciful, fashioned and shaped by God, His gospel, and His truth. Now I've asked the um, ushers that they would just quickly hand out a little flyer for you. The beginning, we went over a number of these counterfeit gospels. There's a little document I want to give to you um, that lists at least six of them from Trevor Wax's book, Counterfeit Gospels. You may be interested in this. And on the front, I've taken a little bit of the blurb that summarizes what, what these are all about. And I would just encourage you to read these over. And at the bottom, I have a question here is this. Uh, consider these counterfeits and identify the voices that you are likely to be more at home with. Which ones have influenced you the most? Which ones do you hear most often in Christian culture? Which ones have you sought to live by? Friends, this is, this is serious stuff. We want to be careful that the gospel we hold dear is not distorted by us. That we are clear, that we are accurate, and that we are proclaiming and embracing the true gospel of Jesus Christ that results in new life and a life that is abundant. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, for the opportunity of gathering here today. Lord, I, I ask that 
we would be people of mercy. That one of the one of the legacies of Gateway Bible Church is, is yes, that we want to deal with people's sin and, and get them to, to pursue Christ's likeness, but, but also that we are doing it with an attitude and a heart of mercy. Lord, would you instill that in us? Lord, would you would you allow us to take on that mantle and to do that for your glory? Now, Lord, as we transition into a time where we're going to be celebrating what you have done for us on the cross, we ask, Lord, that you would freshen us with the reality of what you did in giving your body, with the reality in the fact that you shed your blood as that sacrifice once for all. And, Lord, that that is the means by which, that is the true gospel um, transaction, Lord, that was necessary for us being reconciled to you, Lord. Help us to, to be reminded of that, Lord, to be refreshed by it, and, Lord, to be renewed so that we can continue on, Lord, in our, in our, our life lived out for your glory. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. If you're visiting.